Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we're going down the hatch with our annual show about all things edible and drinkable in the national capital region. We'll chow down on cookies and cakes as we explore D.C.'s rising bakery craze. We definitely opened this big shop with lots of bills and lots of debt and thought... That I hope we make it. And we'll visit the first farm at a low-income housing development. Sometimes the assumption is that people don't know what's good for them, et cetera, et cetera. I think that that assumption is overrated. I think people know what's good for them. But before we get to all that, we're going to take a bite out of a culinary controversy here in D.C. It has to do with a little something that appeared last week in The Washington Post, an article titled, What's Missing from D.C.'s Food Scene? A Lot. I think I feel slightly more hopeful than the article that appeared reflected, but I'm very critical of the food scene. That's Mark Furstenberg, the guy who wrote the article. Furstenberg is a baker, a chef, and the former owner of Marvelous Market and Remarkable Breads. And the way he sees it, D.C. lacks what he calls a discernible food culture. People who care deeply about food and who come to Washington or grow up here learning about a food tradition that is geographically native to us as well as culturally native to us. Well, Furstenberg's comments got many in the local food scene pretty steamed up, including Jessica Sidman, food editor for Washington City Paper. She says Furstenberg isn't giving local diners enough credit. The people who live in Washington come from all over the world. They come from those supposedly superior cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles, they know good food, and they're going to judge the new restaurants just as harshly as the old ones. She also says Furstenberg dismissed a major part of D.C.'s culinary culture, the burgeoning craft beer and mixology scene, which actually some say isn't all that burgeoning. The Ricky was invented here in the 1880s. I mean, what other kind of tradition do you want? That's D.C. native Derek Brown, owner of The Passenger, Columbia Room, and his newest spot, Mockingbird Hill, a ham and sherry bar in Shaw. I invite Mark Furstenberg to come let me make him a Ricky so he can shut up about all of this no no local tradition stuff. Now, Mark Furstenberg says he's aware of the food-based furor he sparked. In fact, that was the idea. He wants to get people talking about Washington's food scene. I'd like people, particularly young people, to notice much more acutely what they eat. I'd also like people to object to prices and object to pretension. I'd like to have restaurants that don't take reservations called to account for that. We have links to Furstenberg's article and Jessica Sidman's response on our website, metroconnection.org. And we're curious, do you think D.C.'s food scene has come a long way? Or does it still have a way to go? Email us at metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. Now, the guy we'll meet next definitely feels D.C.'s food scene has progressed by leaps and bounds. If you had asked me 10 years ago to name you five great restaurants in the city, I'd have a hard time. Just 10 years ago. Just 10 years ago. But now, says Chef Robert Weedmeyer, who's been cooking in D.C. for decades. Oh, I'd say now for sure there's, there's a lot. 
is a lot. These days, Weedmeyer owns a lot of restaurants himself, including Marcel's, Bravo, Wildwood Kitchen, Brasserie Beck, and Muscle Bar and Grill. It's funny when I tell people I own the Muscle Bar, I gotta say it's muscles that you eat, not like, you know, muscles from lifting weights. <laughs> We're in the kitchen of Brasserie Beck right now, which, like Muscle Bar, serves up a bounty of those edible bivalves. So I go through about 7,500 pounds of muscles like every two weeks or something like that. I thought you might say every few months. No. Every two weeks? Yeah, it's a lot of muscles. And Weedmeyer's been showing off those muscles all week long as part of Belgian Restaurant Week. The annual culture and culinary affair commemorates July 21st, 1831, now known as Belgian National Day, when Leopold I became Belgium's very first king. Now, while Robert Weedmeyer wasn't born in Belgium, he does feel an intense connection with the country. Absolutely. My father was born and raised in Antwerp, Belgium. I went to culinary school in the Netherlands, and then I worked in Belgium. So I always had a passion for Belgian food and, of course, Belgian beer. And this week's been all about Belgian food and beer, as Brasserie Beck, Muscle Bar, and a half dozen other Belgian-influenced restaurants have been presenting prefix menus and special happenings, like Waffle Wednesday and Belgian Happy Hour. But the grand pair of all Belgian Restaurant Week events, says Robert Weedmeyer, is this weekend's Muscle Throwdown. I've got two of my chefs that compete. My, one, my chef from here and my chef from Marcel's, Paul Sturman. How are they training for it? Oh, they're training real hard. <laughs> they're training really hard. Daily workouts. Daily workouts. <laughs> Indeed, from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. at Eastern Market, chefs will cook in 15-minute intervals in hopes of winning the judges' hearts and taste buds with the best muscle dish. To find out what makes a muscle dish the best, I headed to D.C.'s 14th Street Corridor and swung by B2. Hi, I'm Rebecca. Rebecca. Nice to meet you. The new Belgian restaurant owned and operated by Belgian-born chef Bart Vandala. Vandale, uh, Nicole in the U.S. Vandala also owns Belga Cafe on Barracks Row. He was a contestant on Top Chef Seattle. And as the Muscle Throwdown's MC, he'll assist the judges in selecting a winner. How will the judges decide what makes the best muscle? key component it has to be cooked with beer um, flavor is about half the amount of points that you can get originality creativity and if you not cook it in time on time you can lose five points also so after being on top chef i know a little bit about competitions so i was like i gotta throw that game in there for them also let's see how they're gonna do Vandala prepares a bunch of original, creative muscle dishes of his own at B2, like his signature B2 mussels, cooked with shiitake mushrooms, spring onion, celery root, thyme, and what Vandala calls the three Bs. Everything with a B is better, so we started with uh, a little bit butter in the beginning, have to have some bacon, and then we're adding beer. But he wants people to know that Belgian cuisine is about more than just beer and mussels, even those famous waffles, which, incidentally, Belgians never refer to as Belgian waffles. We have Brussels waffles, Liege waffles, vanilla waffles, trope waffles, coffee waffles. We have boatload of different waffles, but we don't have Belgian waffles in Belgium. What they do have, he says, is hands down the finest cuisine in the world. I always say in a joking matter, if the French want to eat well, they come to Belgium. But if they then ask, why is Belgian food so popular and so good? It's because we've been conquered so many times. We kept their their IDs or their good food and kicked them back out. Back at Brasserie Beck, as Robert Weedmeyer cooks up a pot of his classic white wine mussels with butter, parsley, and cream. Now we also put these half-roasted garlic heads in there. 
So we roast these garlic heads, so we stick these in here too. The chef says he agrees with Bart Vandala about the quality of Belgian cuisine. I would encourage everybody, if, if they, people say they're foodies, if you're a true foodie out there, you must go to Belgium and eat. Because if you tell me you're a foodie and I say, have you been to Belgium to eat, and you say no, then you're not a foodie. Because you will find the best food in Belgium, by far. But if you're looking for Belgian food a bit closer to home right about now, Belgian Restaurant Week runs through Sunday night. You can find more information about Belgian Restaurant Week on our website, metroconnection.org. And again, the Muscle Throwdown takes place Saturday from 11 to 3 at Eastern Market, followed by a blindfolded beer challenge. Everybody's working out on the sand From the latest dance craze to a wild handstand Now, well, last year was great now, but this year is better You better grab your chick or else a muscle and I'll get her Flex your muscles for kicks now, now, now Gotta hustle the chicks, yeah, yeah, yeah Take your vitamin pill now So you can find a plethora of restaurants, Belgian or otherwise, in a place like downtown D.C., not to mention all sorts of grocery stores and farmer's markets, food trucks. You know, the list goes on and on. And yet, not too far from downtown, you can still find plenty of food deserts. Those are areas with little access to fresh and healthy things to eat. But in one of these deserts, amidst a cluster of apartment buildings, a green oasis is sprouting. Jacob Fenston brings us the story behind the newest urban farm in Prince George's County. All right, let's try one of three. It's 9 a.m. on Saturday, and dozens of volunteers are fanning out across the Autumn Woods apartment buildings in Bladensburg. Uh, we're, my name is Lindsay. I'm doing a survey with EcoCity Farms. It takes a few tries before someone opens up. Okay, again. Yep. Oh, Good morning. morning. <laughs> Sorry, Sorry to bug you. <laughs> Volunteers Lindsay Smith and Grace Soriano are knocking on doors to ask about people's eating and shopping habits. But the purpose is really just to learn about food issues from the people that live here. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're with Eco City Farms, which already runs a one-acre urban farm a few miles away in Edmonston. This summer, Eco City is breaking ground on a new farm in this low-income apartment complex. They say it's the first working farm in the country that's on the grounds of a subsidized housing development. Do you know about the farm up on the hill? Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. great. Today, they're out to spread the word to residents and find out what they want from the farm. How often do you do your food shop? Once a month. month. Deborah Anderson says she gets all her groceries about once a month at Shoppers, Shoppers, the closest full-service supermarket a little over two miles away. In the past seven days, like the past week, how many servings of fruits and vegetables did you eat every day? Mm, Maybe two Two. per day. It's really sad sometimes you can tell the life expectancy by somebody based on their zip code. Bladensburg Mayor Walter James is a big supporter of the farm. He says right now there just isn't a lot of healthy food available in his town. What there is a lot of is your fast food, your little convenience store, your little snack places where we want to kind of change it and bring more healthy things to the community. So for years, he's wanted to start an urban farm in town. One day, he was out riding his bike and came pedaling up the hill to Autumn Woods. And they had this open space. I'm like, you know, that would be a good location. A grassy, vacant lot uncommon in these dense inner suburbs. So he started making phone calls. Soon, the eco-city farmers had arranged a rent-free 15-year lease. Hey, we need more wood chips. A little bit more. 
You can take this little bit more that's in here out. It's a cloudy, muddy morning on the farm, <laughs> and 10 teenagers from the neighborhood are hard at work planting the first season. Thank you, Diego. It's part of EcoCity's free summer youth camp. Well, what I'm doing is I'm picking up compost and spreading it around the plant. I'm planting um, peppers. We planted squash, zucchini, watermelons, basil, chives. It's hard work. It takes a lot. All this dirt, and especially when it rained yesterday. It's a challenge because some people don't like bugs, and they pop up, and they just get scared. They want to quit. I'm like that sometimes. On Mondays, we get to cook, and I'm into cooking. I like to cook at home, and then we do gardening, which is, you know, I guess you could say it's an experience because... I've never really actually done this. First I thought food came from out of a can and the containers when I saw them in the grocery store. So I didn't know how they really were made until my grandma showed me that they were actually planted. Those were local teenagers Kiara Oliver, Zolake Rendon, Pauline Abisike, Fiance Yates, Jasmine Gray, and Diego Datis. They're learning about soil conservation and erosion and composting and also some basics about food. Most kids know a french fry, they don't know a potato. Margaret Morgan Hubbard is the founder of EcoCity Farms. It's really surprising how basic it is. I had, uh, we were growing eggplants, and a kid said to me, oh, that's how eggs, that's where eggs come from. Education is one big reason for putting a farm in the midst of all these apartments. It can be a sort of teaching laboratory. People walking home see it and get interested and involved. And don't be afraid to use your hands, because that's what you want to do. Benny Erez is one of the camp leaders today. He's an expert in compost and high-density farming. He says this little patch of land will produce a lot of food when it's up and running. On three acres, you could probably raise enough food for, and this is an estimate, uh, most of the people in this apartment complex. That's about 1,000 people, one-tenth of the entire town's population. The farmers plan to operate it as a CSA, community-supported agriculture. People will be able to buy weekly deliveries of fresh veggies. Those who can't afford it can get a reduced price or pay by working in the fields. we got some worms over here, which is good. There have been some challenges. With hundreds of windows facing the farm, there's no shortage of feedback from residents, says Margaret Morgan Hubbard. Yeah, there, are, there will be complaints and there will be concerns. Earlier in the year, farmers set up a temporary greenhouse to use as a model for teaching. We did it on a Sunday, and before we left, we got complaints that we were turning this into a shanty town. But she says as the farm blossoms, those complainers will start to see it as an asset, not a nuisance. I'm Jacob Fenston. Time for a break, but when we get back, war over water, the swirling debate about our region's last best creek. This is an issue that will affect the backup drinking water supply for over 3 million Washington area residents. That and more in a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. (laughs) 
I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today, we're going down the hatch with our annual show about the D.C. region's food and drink. And when it comes to drink, this week was a big one for the most essential drink of all. Water. The Washington Suburban Sanitary Commission says it will shut down the 54-inch water main as early We hear things like this about to happen to us. That's when the rush come out. And when it comes out of service, our ability to support southern Prince George's County is greatly compromised. The crisis over a faulty water main in Prince George's County is now behind us. But in Montgomery County, another water-related controversy is swirling around thanks to the proposed construction of more than a 1,000 new homes next to Ten Mile Creek in Clarksburg. Some environmentalists and water quality experts say putting major development alongside the backup drinking water source for 3 million people would be a major mistake. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson has the story. Kathy Wiss is hunched over a table that she's set up on the banks of Ten Mile Creek. She's peering into a plastic bin filled with what looks, frankly, like nothing more than water, rocks, and a bit of dirt. Oh my goodness, here's, I don't, here's something I didn't see before. Looks kind of interesting. Wiss coordinates the Water Quality Monitoring Program for the Audubon Naturalist Society. And what she's spotted is some kind of benthic macroinvertebrate. This one's a caddisfly. We have several different kinds of caddisflies uh, today. Benthic macroinvertebrates are the tiny animals that live among the stones and sediments at the bottoms of streams and rivers. The vast majority are insects, but the community also includes snails, crayfish, and worms. Wiss says the number and diversity of these creatures found in a creek can provide a good sense of its health. And Ten Mile Creek, she says, is healthier than any creek in the county and maybe the region. It's just so amazing to find this amount of diversity in our area that is getting pretty urbanized. Ginny Barnes is vice chair of the environmental organization Conservation Montgomery. She also performs water quality checks for Audubon in another Montgomery County creek, Watts Branch, which empties directly into the Potomac River. What is really polluting that stream, and is not polluting this stream, is sediment. If you look at this stream, you don't lift a rock and see clouds of sediment fill the clear water. You see that all through the Watts Branch. Barnes, Wiss, and a coalition of environmental and citizen groups are worried the same fate could befall Ten Mile, what many call the region's last best creek. The county is considering plans for an 1,100-house development adjacent to Ten Mile Creek, and the coalition argues that rushing ahead with the plans could lead to muddier and more polluted waters. And some county residents say the fight isn't just about clean water. It's about broken promises. To understand exactly why, you have to drive a little ways away from Ten Mile Creek and back to the center of Clarksburg. Well, you'll look and see these undulating hills of moved soil with pretty mature vegetation now on them since they've been this way for, oh, a couple decades. That's Caroline Taylor of the Montgomery Countryside Alliance. She says before clearing a path for new homes and outlet malls, the county needs to provide current Clarksburg residents with the town center development that was first talked about two decades ago when the master plan for the community was first devised. Right now, Clarksburg residents have to drive to Germantown to shop for groceries. The fear is that we have two large developments that some seem to think are rather sexy in this sort of economic downturn, and there's some very foolish mistakes could go on if we 
promote those developments ahead of this town center, if we promote those developments uh, at the peril of Ten Mile Creek and Seneca Watershed and the uh, groundwater. Taylor and others lay the blame for the disjointed implementation of Clarksburg's master plan directly at the feet of the county council. But Councilmember Craig Rice, who represents Clarksburg, says plans for a town center are finally moving forward. He also says in his three years on the council, he's worked hard to give Clarksburg residents what they want, clearing the path for the new grocery store that's set to open here in the fall. You know, what we've done is delivered on our promise. That was one of the things we said, look, in the meantime, we'll make sure you have a place to shop. You have a couple different stores to go to if you need a dry cleaners or something like that. You shouldn't have to go to Germantown for those simple things. And so we delivered on that. And so I want to continue to deliver on those same kinds of things. It's just that some of these things take a little bit more time, but we are working to push the envelope to make sure we can circumvent as much of that time as possible. But the Save 10 Mile Creek Coalition fears that pushing the envelope will just mean pushing more pollution into 10 Mile Creek. Lewis Birnbaum of Pulte Homes, the company that wants to build the homes near 10 Mile Creek, says environmental concerns about his development are unwarranted. A lot of the land that we're proposing to develop on is currently farmland, so the impact to actual trees and forested areas, minimum, minimum, uh, most of our area is farmland already, so there should be less pollutant runoff from our development than there is in its current use. Birnbaum says Pulte has included hundreds of environmentally minded extra features, such as permeable pavements and natural site grading, throughout its development plan. He says the county's own studies show that water quality will not be affected by Pulte's 10 Mile Creek development, and adds that Pulte is still willing to add even more stormwater treatment safeguards to its plan. But he balks at the idea of reducing the number of homes in the plan, as some environmentalists have suggested. He says that could guarantee businesses located at a future town center wouldn't be able to survive. We do understand that our neighbors in Clarksburg are exhausted while waiting for this town center that's promised to them. The point we would like to make is that we have environmentalist groups throwing around, like, who needs another 400? What does it matter? Why do they need 900 homes? Maybe they should have 300 homes. I think everybody's significantly underestimating the impact of two, three, 400 households and how much money they spend per month locally on the local economy. All of these issues should get hashed out in the next few months. The county's planning board will hold hearings this fall on the Clarksburg Master Plan, giving residents a chance to weigh in on the 10 Mile Creek proposal as well as the larger question of what this fast-growing suburban community and its relationship to the area's last, best creek should look like in the decades to come. I'm Jonathan Wilson. We have more about Ten Mile Creek and the Clarksburg Master Plan on our website, metroconnection.org. Our next story takes us from the Maryland suburbs to D.C.'s Palisades neighborhood. That's where, right on MacArthur Boulevard, you'll find Figs Mediterranean Cafe. Two years ago, Abdul Qadir Niori bought Figs. Hailing from Eritrea in East Africa, he'd worked his way up the restaurant industry ladder and had been dreaming of running an eatery of his own. But a few months after achieving that dream, Niori suffered a heart attack and died. 
Many regulars at Figs expected that would be it for the restaurant. But as Tara Boyle tells us, thanks to Niori's younger brother, Saud, that's hardly the case. The first time you walk into Fig's Mediterranean Cafe, Saud Niori will greet you like you're his very best customer. Like he hasn't seen you in a while, and he's glad you're back. So nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thank you for having me, especially during the lunch rush. (laughs) His immediate concern is to figure out what you want for lunch. Got the fattoosh salad, the cucumber citrus salad, they have the beet salad over here. Which is your favorite? My favorite is the uh, curry chickpeas, which is a little spicy. It's fantastic. A bit later, I dig into some of those curried chickpeas, which are, as advertised, a little spicy. But first, Saud and I grab a table to talk. He wants to tell me about his older brother, Abdu. They first met in 1994, here in the U.S., not in their native Eritrea. When I was born, uh, he had already left. It was uh, a big, big uh, shock because meeting your brother in a different country and seeing him all grown up, all of a sudden, you, you have to start all over again, you know? Abdu convinced his younger brother, who was then a teenager, to stay in the U.S. and start all over with him here in the D.C. area. And uh, I started going to school, and I started working with him at the restaurant that he was a chef at, uh, which was Lebanese Taverna. The brothers spent years in the restaurant industry. By 2011, Abdu wanted to take the next step and buy his own place. He was ready. He was ready to do something different. That August, Abdu brought Saud to Figs and basically said, surprise, I own this. Abdu was now his own boss, and he had big plans for his restaurant. He was then that he's going to need to cha- make a lot of changes because uh, the previous owner, their customer service was not as good. Uh, let's just put it that way. And uh, so it was hard to change, uh, to bring all the people back. And Saud says his brother was making great progress in bringing the neighborhood back to Figs. But then, in January 2012, Abdu died unexpectedly. I remember it as it was uh, like yesterday. It was a Tuesday morning. Abdu took his kids to school and then went to the gym. While he was working out, he had a heart attack. And they uh, put him in an ambulance. While he was in an ambulance, that's when he died. At first, Saud says he didn't know what to do. You know, he was like a father, a brother, like a, br- a friend, uh, everything to us. You know, he was the oldest. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what's next. It was just the most unimaginable tragedy, and everyone in the neighborhood presumed that was the end of Figs. Jenny Pearson is a Palisades resident and Figs regular. She arrived at the restaurant the day Abdu died to find Chef Khadija Benwas and another staffer in tears. You know, we all die, but we don't generally expect people to die suddenly, and we don't expect people in their 40s to die suddenly. And Khadija kept stressing that day, you know, Abdu seemed fine. Saud didn't have much time to adjust to the shock of his brother's death. He knew almost immediately what he had to do. His family, including his sister-in-law and his brother's five children, needed him to step up and take over the restaurant. I was looking at his kids and his, his wife and everybody else. And, uh, I mean, I, they, had, they, had, they don't have anybody else but us. Keeping figs open and thriving means long, long hours at work, and not just for Saud. Khadija makes all the restaurant's food from scratch each day, which means arriving as early as 6 a.m. 
Right now, she's chopping big bunches of cilantro in Fig's tiny kitchen. This is for Harira, and for uh, Lake Msaka, and for big eggplant with grand turkey. Do you use a lot of cilantro? A lot of cilantro, a lot of fresh garlic, a lot of fresh uh, lemon. Khadija says she's been happy to work for Saud and for his brother before him. I like Saud, I like everybody. He's nice people for me. Saud shares Khadija's devotion to figs, but coming here to this place that meant so much to his big brother is sometimes difficult. Each day, he looks at pictures of Abdu tacked up next to the cash register and updates his brother on the restaurant's progress. I just look at him and said, uh, hey, uh, this was the sale last night, you know, we did this much and just try to keep him updated on what's going on, I guess. Abdu may be gone, Saud says, but he's determined to keep his brother's dream alive. I'm Tara Boyle. weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we'll visit Capitol Heights, Maryland and the Benning Ridge neighborhood of Southeast D.C. My name is Sharon Shanklin Brown. I am a resident of the Benning Ridge community, one of 29 communities in Ward 7. We're nestled in between Pennsylvania Avenue, Benning Road, and East Capitol Street. It's not a neighborhood that will allow for a lot of shops and things of that sort. For that, we are looking forward to maybe Minnesota Avenue being developed. We're not far from Minnesota Avenue. But this is a real community. It's a neighborhood because, again, it's tree-lined, it's grass, it's flowers in the spring and the summer, and it's just homes, and these homes have been well-kept. Lawns are manicured, and the neighbors generally just take pride in where they live. It's quiet. Most of the neighbors that are here have been here for many years, some longer than we have. And as I said, I've been here 32 years, so there are some who have raised children. Their grandchildren come through. It has its own history. It has its own culture. Uh, Most of the people now that reside here, of course, are seniors. We've seen some pass on, and we've seen new neighbors come in. My name is Nicholas McDonald, residing in Capitol Heights, Maryland, right in between Marlboro Pike and Central Avenue, along the stretch of Southeast and Southern Avenue, all the way down Central Avenue until about 495, where Largo begins. Capitol Heights is right next door to D.C. The kind of people that live in Capitol Heights are definitely a lot of families, some retired folks. I would say it's a middle-class area. When I take a walk around the neighborhood, I see a lot of children. There's always someone who is trying to take their child to the park. There are parks everywhere, um, basketball courts, and you see a lot of elderly catering to their yards. 
Every summer, we do have a Capitol Heights Day that is hosted at the Brook Road Neighborhood Park. And you have uh, county members come out and support the neighborhood and show face and show love and have fun with the kids and talk to the adults and parents about things that are growing and advancing in the community. Capitol Heights is a great place to live because there's not too much trouble to get into in Capitol Heights. There are a lot of good people that are very peaceful, very informative and educated. And again, it's the metropolitan area, so there's always metro buses running and you just can't go wrong in a neighborhood like this. We heard from Sharon Shanklin Brown in Benning Ridge and Nicholas McDonald in Capitol Heights. If you'd like us to knock on your door so you can talk about your neighborhood, send an email to metro at wamu.org, or send us a tweet. Our handle is at wamumetro. And you can see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far on our website, metroconnection.org. Up next, is D.C. undergoing a bakery boom? If you give someone a cookie and they're really excited because they think it's like the best cookie they've ever had, that's a pretty good way to navigate the craziness in life. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, And this week we are bringing you our annual Down the Hatch show where we dish about cuisine in the National Capital Region. In just a bit, we'll hit the Ocean City Boardwalk and hear why a member of a famous seafood family is opening a vegan restaurant. But first... All right, so here we are in northeast D.C., the Noma neighborhood. We'll take a little stroll, walking on L Street, turning up Congress to what's being called, ah, there it is, Washington's first food incubator coming up to Union Kitchen. Roughly two dozen startup companies operate inside the 7,300-square-foot warehouse, and among them is a new beverage business. Hello. Co-founded by this guy. I'm Andreas. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Are you drinking kombucha? No, I'm drinking coffee. (laughs) We're going to be drinking a lot of kombucha over the next couple hours. (laughs) Kombucha is a 2,000-year-old drink made from fermented sweetened tea, and Andreas Schneider opened D.C.'s very first kombucha brewery, Capital Kombucha, with two of his buddies from business school at George Washington University. The guys just graduated this summer. I figured we'd start just by giving you a tour of the place. That would be a and then Schneider walks me through the various workspaces inside Union Kitchen, including his own. This is our area, so the fermentation's happening inside these tents. The tents are actually miniature greenhouses covered with blue zip-up rain tarps to block out the light. So what's happening in there? Okay, you want to take a peek in? I don't want to screw up the light situation. We can, we can peek in just for a minute. Okay. Inside each tent are rows of white plastic barrels, each containing sweetened tea with an added kombucha culture, or mother, as it's called. Oh, wow, it's warm in there. Yeah, they, they like it around 80, 90 degrees. As the mother culture digests the sugar in the tea, a baby culture is produced, also known by the acronym SCOBY. That's spelled S. Symbiotic. C. Depending on who you talk to, colony, collection, or community. O. Of. B-Y. Bacteria and yeast. As fermentation continues, the SCOBY grows. Eventually, you tap the liquid, retaining some of it for your subsequent batch of kombucha. Now, for a long time in the United States, kombucha was primarily a home-brewed thing. But over the past decade or so, it's gone more mainstream. So now you can find it in all sorts of flavors. Up until now, we've sold four. The basil lemongrass, the mango chili, the ginger, and the mint lime. Kombucha is known for its effervescent quality, its probiotic properties, and, as Andreas Schneider knows all too well, its sometimes funky taste. 
I grew up in upstate New York on a small organic farm. It was on the farm that I first learned about kombucha. So my dad introduced me to it. During the summers, he'll spend like hours on the tractor making hay. It gets hot and he gets thirsty. And one summer he transitioned to kombucha. So I came home from college and he's like, you gotta try this stuff. What was your initial reaction when you tasted it? This stuff tastes awful. <laughs> I'm like, this is really horrible and I don't like it. <laughs> and that's the thing, Schneider says. Like wine, beer, and yogurt, kombucha is, of course, fermented. So it can sometimes have this sharp, sour taste and smell. But after Schneider tried this curious concoction, he began meeting people who'd, say, gulp it down to recover from a tough workout or to detox the morning after throwing a few sheets to the wind. And so I was like, this is a really interesting product. If my dad's into it, if these friends who you know, go out all the time are into it, there's something here that's obviously speaking to people. And if the only thing holding it back is that the taste is a little weird, maybe I can figure out how to make it taste better. So in 2011, Schneider teamed up with GW classmates John Lee and Dan Lieberman, and they began experimenting with different flavor varieties, fermentation times, and carbonation levels. Clearly you're using your MBA savvy because it's a new business, but there's a lot of science and chemistry, biology even, it seems. Yeah. The MBA skills we're probably using the most are adaptability and problem solving, but it's definitely not just number crunching, which I think is what we like about it. We've had to you know, interview chemists and biologists to learn how this fermentation stuff works. Uh, and through a lot of practice, a lot of research, a lot of trial and error, we think we're getting good at it. They also seem to be getting more popular. You can now buy Capital Kombucha at nearly 60 stores around the region. And just this week, the guys added five new flavors to their repertoire. Coconut water, cucumber melon, cherry blossom, peach, and strawberry. I love that you're using local strawberries. Yeah, absolutely. We do all of our ingredient sourcing through D.C. Central Kitchen. In addition to the soup kitchen and reintegration and job training, they also run a produce wholesaling business. And we want to keep our money in the community and love working with them and love the relationships they've built with local growers. Speaking of local, Andreas Schneider prides Capital Kombucha for being one of the first kombucha breweries on the East Coast. The two largest kombucha producers in the country right now are both based out of L.A. And the people who drink it tend to be younger, active, into healthy food, uh, into experimenting, kind of unique taste exploring food. And it got me thinking that something can catch on with all these people. Let's see if these folks live in D.C. And they do. I mean, we're a young city, one of the youngest cities in the country. We're one of the healthiest cities in the country consistently. And so we kind of thought there's no reason why there can't be a local brewery here, and there really should be. Schneider says he and his partners hope to eventually distribute Capital Kombucha across the country. They're also widening their product line, starting with Mint Lime Kombucha Sorbet made in partnership with local gelateria Dolceza. During my visit to Union Kitchen, I get a sneak peek and taste. This is actually the initial batch we've produced with them. And this is part of our plan to make sure people have kombucha at and after every meal of their day. Put it in a smoothie, protein shake after the gym. What can't you do with kombucha? Maybe put it in cereal. (laughs) I'm not, you know, never say never. Capital Kombucha will release that new kombucha sorbet in just a few days during Eat Local First Week. You can find more information plus a cocktail recipe for a kombucha dark and stormy by visiting our website, metroconnection.org.
We'll head upstairs from Capital Kombucha now and head to Union Kitchen's second floor. That's where you'll find the bustling kitchen of Whisked, a three-year-old baking company run by Jenna Huntsberger. So we're just trying to, like, get everything into the oven so we can get it out and cooled and packaged so I can make deliveries in the afternoon and not be late. As Emily Berman tells us, Huntsberger is among many up-and-comers creating a bakery boom in the nation's capital. The sun is barely up, and already the cookies are cooling, quiches are in the oven, and pies are getting their finishing touch. We're doing crumble topping on blueberry pies right now. Fridays are the culmination of the entire week. Pretty much it's like prep, prep, prep all week, and then this is our big baking day for the three farmer's markets that I do. So it's 14th and New, Bloomingdale, and Glover Park. Whisked also runs a pie CSA, where customers can order a sweet or savory pie once a month, or even each week. To keep it all straight, Jenna Huntsberger prints out detailed plans. So we baked 203 six-inch pies today, and then the cookies we're doing about like 600 or so. It's a lot of product, and it isn't even her busy season. But when I ask if she feels ready to open her own store... So I guess I have been kind of intimidated about going that route because it is so much money to raise, and it's like a huge financial investment. If you are going to have a $5 average ticket, you need to sell so many cookies or like so many scones in order to make your rent. Beth Cantor, author of the book Washington, D.C. Chef's Table, says she's seen many bakers take up this low-risk business model. You don't just jump in and, and lease a space for a year on a crowded street, but instead you take the time and maybe rent space in a community kitchen, and then you kind of experiment. And then from there, you slowly grow and see what the market wants. Cantor grew up in New York and laments our lack of what she calls those red and white string bakeries. But there's no need to skip town because D.C.'s bakery boom is just getting started. Well, I think it makes sense that the food scene would come first and then the cocktails would follow. And then just like the progression of a good meal, that bakeries are following suit. The opening bell rings at the H Street Farmer's Market, signaling it's okay to shop. And at Frenchie's, artisan pastries and desserts, the customers are already lining up. Because a lot of people, when they come here, they ask, where's your shop? And I'm like, this is my shop. (laughs) You know, it's hard to explain it, really. Erica Skolnick studied hospitality in college, went to culinary school, and worked in kitchens her entire adult life. She can make anything, but she loves to bake croissants. Chocolate, almond, plain, raspberry. She also makes pistachio morning buns and vegetable tarts. I mean, when we first started the market, we did like 50, and we sold out like in a half hour, and that was... It was great, but it was just like, got to do more, you know, and I was never used to doing more than that. So just kind of a matter of like making more dough, getting up earlier. And I think today we have about 100 pieces. Hi, can I get one of the ham and cheese croissants? She sells throughout the week at Seasonal Pantry in Shaw, but it's her Saturday morning croissants that have brought on the buzz. After just a few months at the market, she's bringing in a steady 500 bucks a week, and often more, which allowed the company to buy its first cargo van and hire a part-time assistant. Skolnick expects to sign a lease on her own bakery by the end of this year. Um, carrot bread with pecans and um, a ginger orange scone, please. Yes, sir. A few blocks north in Bloomingdale, nestled in a strip of new restaurants and bars, one bakery has already set up shop. 
Jamelia Smith-Cans and Sarah Fattel are co-owners of Grassroots Gourmet. They've been growing the business since 2009, and about a year ago, they got serious about opening a storefront. We spent over 150000 we thought it was going to be 75. We thought yeah. it was going to be 75. We like did the research and added the things and put it together and thought about paying, you know, all the people and we were like, "Okay, so like 75." And then we were like, "Oh, well over 150. Great." They took out a bank loan and asked family for help. But from the beginning, Sarah Fatel says she knew walk-ins wouldn't pay the rent. We have orders, we have weddings, we have wholesale to other restaurants and things, and then we have our walk-ins which are you know, the bread and butter of our daily work, but that alone wouldn't pay the bills unless we were in a different place. Fatel uses leftover batter from her custom cakes, cookies, and pies to fill the display case. She also bakes throughout the day and is getting better at guessing how many of each item to make. I mean, it's definitely a risk. We, could, we definitely opened this big shop with lots of bills and lots of debt and thought, that I hope we make it, you know. They have the neighborhood bakery they always dreamed of and are making it easier than ever for Washingtonians to add a little sweetness to their life. I'm Emily Berman. We're putting together a map of our region's bakeries. You can find it at metroconnection.org, and you can share your favorite place to grab sweet stuff. We'll add it to the site. Just send a note to metro at wamu.org. We'll turn now from the sugary sweet to the leafy green with On the Coast. Our regular segment in which Brian Russo brings us the latest from coastal Delaware and the eastern shore of Maryland. There's a brand new restaurant and store in Ocean City, Maryland. It's right on the boardwalk, competing with all those french fry stands and candy stores and all-you-can-eat buffets. But something sets this place apart. It's vegan and raw. My Nature, as it's called, is the brainchild of a woman who married into the Phillips family. The Phillips family, of course, being famous not so much for vegan food, but for seafood. Brian recently visited My Nature to talk with Janet Phillips, who says the journey to opening this business has been a long one. I guess it started about 13 years ago when I first started learning about the wild edibles and learning how nutritious they were. And I started doing wild edible and medicinal plant walks and... Along the way, I met a young man who said, I only eat raw. And I didn't really understand what that meant at the time, but um, I finally realized that this is the only way we should be eating. How far into being a vegan did you realize that, you know what, I really want to share this with other people. I don't want to make this just a personal journey. I want to start something. When I realized the statistics, um, how horrific the health of Americans themselves, but the planet, the planet is being destroyed by bad eating habits. And if people would just understand that very simple fact, it would make it a lot easier for people to change literally overnight. Talk about for you living here, how hard it was once you decided to go vegan and eating raw foods. For me personally, I, you know, made a lot of my own food. And if we were going to go out, I would just bring extra wild greens or sprouts along with me to soup up any salad I was going to get for the evening. But at some point, I just thought it was so ridiculous to have to take these steps to eat good food. Well, you know, the other irony, too, is that you have married into one of the most famous names in the world in seafood and buffets, the Phillipses. Talk about when you you came to the family and said, 
I not only have, have gone into eating uh, raw and vegan food, but I also would like to start my own place. What was the reaction? Well, I had kind of been putting the bug in my brother-in-law's ear for several years now, giving him a little information here and there about how toxic our fish are and about how bad it is. And so when I said I was going to do this, we were actually thinking about buying the local organic store. You know, I think a lot of people, the perception is is if it says organic or local, that is immediately okay and there's nothing added to it that could be harmful. Talk about the misconceptions with those sort of labels. Well, the misconception is they think if it's organic, then it's got to be good for me. Well, there's so many prepackaged organic things now on the market because people are going gung-ho in that direction just to make money. People think if they eat wild-caught fish, they're perfectly fine. Well, the ocean does not discriminate where, you know, the pollutants go. It's everywhere now. So the misconception is that organic is always healthy, and it's not. That's why I opened this place, to try to raise the bar to a level that people could understand, that they could walk in here and know that every decision they make is going to be a good one. What has been the the discourse on a daily basis when people come in here and realize that there is a a raw foods and, and vegan shop in town. Most people that come have actually sought us out. They're vegan already, Mm -hmm. and they walk in the store and say, thank God you're here. Other people walk in, and they're not quite sure what they're walking into. They just walk in for a smoothie, and then they realize there's this whole other thing going on here, and they're a little surprised, and we give them a little information and send them on their way, and I think for many of them, it's that awakening moment to realize what they've been missing, I guess. That was Janet Phillips, the owner of My Nature, Ocean City's very first raw and vegan restaurant, talking with coastal reporter Brian Russo. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Jonathan Wilson, Emily Berman, Brian Russo, and Tara Boyle. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our interns are Eva Harder and Kayla Peoples. Lauren Landau and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album title tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. All the music we use is listed on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing on our website by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. You can also subscribe to our podcast there or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we are all about safety. We'll visit a D.C. corner where 13 people were shot in March and hear how safe residents feel now. We'll investigate bicycle thefts and hear the story of a bike that made it back to its owner, safe and sound. And we'll learn what safety means for a man whose 9 to 5 routine involves jumping out of planes. There is nothing like your first time skydiving. You're not going to ever be able to repeat that. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.